Good morning, everyone. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning, just a few verses from that text. I want you to uh, open to that if you would this morning, particularly verses 14 through 17 will be the focus <coughs> of our discussion. Um, Father, uh, your word is incredible, and uh, we desperately need your help to communicate it effectively. Uh, so Lord, today we do not rest in our own strength and our own capabilities, we rest in you. And pray that by the Spirit, uh, you would uh, illuminate truth and show yourself to us through your word. And uh, in the process, change us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, obviously, we're in the midst of an interesting and difficult time as a country in relationship to the hurricane season. And uh, the one that is coming into Florida this morning is certain to be devastating. Yesterday afternoon, the head of FEMA... Uh, Brock Long put out this harsh yet honest and necessary press release. He said this. He said, for those in the Keys, you are on your own until we can actually get in there. And it is safe for our teams to support local and state efforts. In a TV interview, he reiterated this, saying, the message has been clear. The Keys are going to be impacted. There is no safe area and you put your life into your own hands by not evacuating. Two weeks ago, I believe it was the governor of Texas, made this strong and dramatic statement. He said, if you choose to stay behind, please take a black marker. Write your name and social security number on your arm. Now, those warnings were meant to have the value of shock. They were meant to motivate and change the behavior of people. Strong and dramatic, but truthful and necessary. What were these individuals doing? They were discharging their responsibility as governors, as mayors, whatever their status was, they were discharging a duty, an obligation that they had sensed and experienced, which included a strong message. Two and a half years ago, I went through a transition relationship to our life as a church. We moved from a single senior pastor model to a uh, pastoral team as a church family. I was able to spend more time on the street uh, doing some uh, work on the side, uh, being bivocational in my ministry efforts. As that happened, I met a, a man uh, his name is Chris. Uh, he's an individual that I have hired from time to time to do work, a great guy. After I uh, got to know him for a little while, he uh, kind of came across the fact that I was a believer. Some, somehow, uh, in our conversations, I wasn't wearing a t-shirt, okay, it was in our conversations, and in our discussion, he, it became clear to him that I was a follower of Christ, which is in and of, in and of itself a miracle. Okay. Uh, upon discovering that, he said this to me. He said, have you heard of the way of the master? I said, I had actually just taken that course about 12 months ago before that conversation. It's a, uh, an evangelism course put up by Kirk Cameron. Very, very helpful in, in, in exposing to the gospel and teaching people how to share the gospel. And 
I said to him, yeah, I had heard it. He said, have you ever seen the interviews that they do on TV? They do man-on-the-street interviews where they will walk up to people with a microphone, just ask them questions and video their responses. He said, I find it fascinating watching those responses. Then he stopped and made this observation. He said, that's what you're trying to do to me. I felt exposed. (laughs) But I looked at him and I said, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do with you. Now, here's the truth. My friend Chris had an expectation that someone who knows the good news of Christ is actually responsible to share that truth with others. Fascinating, isn't it? A person that I don't know to this day has come to know Christ personally, but has an understanding that if you know truth that powerful and that life-altering, that eternal destiny changing, if you know that, you have an obligation to communicate that with people. The gospel is the theme of the text that we're looking at this morning. This idea that we have a sense of, uh, of, of obligation and responsibility to share with people the good news of Christ. I want to read this text for you. And as I read it, I, if, if you are okay with writing in your Bible, which I am abundantly okay with personally, I want you to circle the word gospel and the word righteousness and the word faith. Because I think these three words are the theme of this short section of Scripture. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says this. He says, I am obligated. Some of your translations are going to say, I am a debtor. Both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from beginning to end or from first to last or from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now this morning, I I, I just want to offer you a a succinct definition of the gospel. Because I think if, if this idea of gospel proclaiming is a responsibility of believers, it's important that we understand what in fact the gospel is. So I'll give you this definition. This is just something that kind of rattles out of my mind as I think of the the broader scope and understanding of the word gospel. Gospel in itself means good news. When it is gospel of God, it starts to be related specifically to good news about a person or about an event. So the good news The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus, namely his death, burial, and resurrection. It is what God has done in Jesus to rescue rebels from what they rightly deserve with the aim of making them sons and daughters of God when they repent and trust in Christ. Okay, so it is the good news of what God has done in Christ to rescue rebels from what they rightly deserve with the aim of making them sons and daughters of God when they... Repent and trust in Jesus. Now, the other thing I think that becomes evident as you hear the idea of good news is that there is an obligation with good news that it should be shared. It's a positive message. It's something that people need to hear. 
One writer said it this way, it is one sinner telling another sinner about the hope of forgiveness that is found in Jesus. A way that I like to express it, when I share the gospel with people and and want them to know that I am not a righteous person coming to an unrighteous person, telling them to get their act together. I want them to know that I am a beggar who found bread, who is telling another beggar where they can find bread. That is the essence of gospel sharing. It is there is good news that has deeply affected and changed my life. And because of that change, that transformation, and my love for God, I cannot keep it to myself. It's good news. It needs to be communicated. It needs to be shared. That's the hope that we have in Christ. The truth, however, is that many of us struggle with sharing our faith, with going into words. We often avoid and ignore, avoid and, and ignore this responsibility because I think often we make it too complicated. In this text, I believe Paul simply kind of lays out for us three ways that the gospel has impacted his personal life, how it has affected how he lives his life and the purpose or aim for which he lives. And I want you to listen to these three thoughts, and I'll just I'll give them to you. Verse 14, I am obligated. Verse 15, I am eager. Verse 16, I am not ashamed. Okay, so when Paul thinks about how God has deeply affected his life and, and so beautifully transformed him. He says, this is, this is the effect that it's having on me. And I hope that as you think about the gospel, th- these effects will begin to take place in your life as well. So the first one is this. I am obligated. Now, the idea of obligation in this text rides very strongly along the ideas of indebtedness, Okay. So I want to ask Bobby to come up here real quick. I gave Bobby an indication I was going to do this to him this morning, okay? So there are two ways that I can get into debt, okay? So one way is this. Bobby comes to me and says, hey, PT, I need some money. So because I'm a friend of Bobby's and have love for Bobby and have known him for over 10 years and trust him, <laughs> I'd say, all right, here's 18 bucks. So I give that money to Bobby. Now, Bobby is indebted to me. He owes me. That's one way that debt works, okay? Now, here's another way. Come on, give that back to me. (laughs) My trust has limits, okay? The other way debt can work is this. I can say to Bobby, here's $18 that I owe to Phil, okay? Now, the, the obligation has shifted. He's not paying me back for something I've given him. He has now been given a responsibility to discharge that debt to fill Satilla. Okay, does that make sense? The difference is God gives me something and I owe God. That's one way I'm indebted to God. But the other way is God has given me something that I owe to someone else. Give me my money back. Okay. (laughs) Most important. Okay. So when Paul talks about being in debt to the gospel, He means it in the sense that God has given him something, entrusted him with something that must be communicated. It can't you, that kind of news you can't keep to yourself. That's the the idea. Paul says, I'm obligated in the sense that God has entrusted me with a message. Now, Paul will speak about that a number of times as you go through the epistles. He realizes that by virtue of coming into this relationship with Christ, he has been entrusted with the responsibility to make that known. That should sound an awful lot like the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says to his disciples who have experienced his grace, you now go into all the world and preach the gospel. Communicate the message of hope, 
with people that are broken and hurting. And one writer made this observation about debt in this context. He said, it is universally dishonest and dishonorable to fail to pay a debt. And in a similar way, we as believers, because of the deep and amazing grace of God that has come to us, have experienced an indebtedness from God that we owe to people around us. God has given us something and said, this changed your life. It is by grace. And I am, I am empowering you and uh, calling and commissioning you to go into all the world and make this message known. Now, I want you to notice how Paul talks about this obligation. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, one thing, if you study ancient history, one thing you will learn about the ancient world is that it was deeply divided. There was the division of Jews and Gentiles. It was a way in Scripture of talking about all people. It's the way people saw the world. We're the blessed people, you're the unblessed. And there was the division and a, a, a failure to communicate with the other group. For the Greeks, they were the elite culture. They, were the, they, they called it Hellenization. They had, the, had been culturally advanced. And when they looked at non-Greeks, the Greek word that's used is barbarian, which we, we get our word barbarians from, right? It's very simple. What they meant was that the rest of the world was uncouth in their language and at some level inferior. That was the view of things. That's the way it was in the ancient world. The gospel aims to shatter those types of divisions. And that's why Paul says, I am eager to speak, writing a letter to Rome, kind of the epicenter of Hellenization or of the Greek uh, culture, Writing there, he says, I have an obligation to Greeks and non-Greeks, to those that are wise and to those that are average. See, Paul sensed deeply in his heart an obligation that, that destroyed prejudices that silenced the gospel. He knew that Christ had died for all. He knew that the gospel was the message of good news for all people. And so he lived with a sense of obligation. As I thought of this idea of obligation this week, I thought of my mom's current situation. And I thought of how I feel about her situation, I've, about her going for three to four months of chemotherapy treatments and needing help in doing that. Here's what I feel. I feel a, because of what I received from my mom, the, and I, I've thought back through this watching our daughter Rebecca with little Ava. I, it is astonishing the amount of, time that a little one demands uh the king of that house right now is ava or the queen of that house right now is ava all everything revolves around that little child it's just the nature of the beast when you're raising a child there is so much that needs to be given and it's it's caused me to think back in my own life and my relationship with my mom and the love and care and concern that was perpetually poured out tirelessly and here's one thing i can say about my mom i and I hope, I hope every mom here could say this. I never heard my mom complain about the, the burden. Three of us in 27 months, all five of us, my parents and three little ones, living in one room in my grandfather's house without complaint. You're thinking, that must be like a couple hundred years ago. <laughs> okay, here's what I feel towards my mom in her time of need. Okay. I feel an obligation, but it is not me paying back a debt. It is not me trying to equal what she gave to me. It is simply out of a sense of 
gratitude that I, I desire to be there and to assist her and my dad through this process. Okay? It's the same way with the gospel. It's not that I'm trying to pay God back for something that is immeasurable and incomprehensible. I can never pay God back for the gospel. It's a debt that's too great. But my life can be lived as a statement of gratitude and indebtedness from God to others around me. That is the sense in which this burden rests on us. Paul knew that he had received a great gift that was to be treasured and shared. And it is in this sense that he was a debtor to God and others because he had been entrusted with the good news of Christ. I think Paul, if he was here this morning, would say to us this. I think he would say, silence in relationship to the gospel is not an option. Because gratitude will always find itself expressed. Otherwise, it is, it is sterile. It's unproductive. It, is, it, it aims at helping others. I thought of this in relationship to my... Uh, my brother's business. My brother has an Ace Hardware store. And if you go in that store, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that there is a very intentional desire to make people feel welcome. Okay? You get within five feet of one of the employees, and I, 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 sometimes I want to say, you know what? Hey, my brother owns this place. Just get off my back. Let me alone. I don't need your help. I grew up here. Okay? So that's, that's how I feel. But He's trained his people to express help to others, to reach out to others, to meet their needs, to give them the information they need for a financial benefit. Okay? And I understand it. It's, it's good business. We ought to do it, wherever you're working in, with all your heart. My question is this. Why don't we, with the same sense of enthusiasm, Pay the debt that we owe to people for the glory of God by communicating with them truth that will change their life forever. And I think we need to say something like this. The silence is strange. It's strange. Because this is the message that has the capacity to alter and change people's lives. So the first thing that Paul would say is, I am obligated. I think the second thing that Paul says in this text is, I am eager. Verse 15, Paul says, that is why this indebtedness, that is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And what you find in this text is an ever-widening desire. Now, Paul's preached the gospel faithfully. It has cost him dearly. It has not made his life better. It's made his life harder. But he is still compelled because of the greatness of the message to communicate it to people around him. And so he, as he moves on to verse 15, he says, I am eager. I have this strong desire, which I believe for Paul is a result of gospel treasuring. I believe Paul has, has meditated on the gospel, has thought about the preciousness of what Christ has done for him, how it has totally transformed and changed his life to the degree that there is in him this, this desire to proclaim, to see the gospel of Christ unleashed in the lives of others, a tireless aim in spite of what it is costing him. Good news, folks, is meant to be shared. Remember when we got the phone call about Ava's birth, my, my first inclination was to think, who can I tell? That's what I wanted to do. That's what good news does. Last year I had the privilege of going to Colorado uh, went for a motorcycle ride with some friends. And 
I could not stop recording what I was seeing and passing it on to my family members. I couldn't help myself. I wanted them to begin to share in some of the beauty of what I was experiencing. And I think it's in that sense that that, that Paul's saying this, this gospel news of Christ tops every list of things that we can be grateful for. And Paul's talking about treasuring and understanding how the gospel has affected our lives until it begins to overflow out of our lives to others. Not as a, oh man, I got to talk to this person because if I don't, I'm failing in my responsibility. No, it's, I have, I have a message that can change your life. As, as I think about this idea of eagerness, I've often thought of the gospel in contrast to a doctor finding the cure for cancer. That's how I think of it. If a doctor finds the cure for cancer, he has an obligation to communicate that message to others, to change and save lives, right? Well, we have a message that not only saves us, but changes our eternal destiny forever. And I think Paul would say, meditate on that until you treasure it so deeply that it begins to overflow out of an abundance and there is an eagerness, there is a desire, there is a not dutiful have to, there is I must communicate this message to others. It would be an awesome thing if everything we did as a church was done with gospel-driven eagerness. Beggars telling beggars where they found bread. I, I think of this at a practical level in the context of our church. If Sunday schools were eager to teach, because I have the privilege of communicating the gospel of God. If people on the worship team were eager because they get to sing the gospel of God and to pursue that craft of singing and musical instrument playing with excellence. If childcare workers were eager in the context of their ministry to greet new families that visit the chapel, knowing that our ministry in that, in that realm makes the gospel attractive and enables people to hear. If those that participate with Pastor James in the greeting team and connection ministry were eager that those who would come will hear the message that has changed our lives. Greeting lit up by the hope that the gospel gives. So the people would leave remembering those people love in a unique way, in a gospel-driven way. You see that the gospel is not merely intellectual property. It is life-altering truth that should affect everything we do as children of God. It's not for private thinking. It's for public treasuring and praising. There is not a realm in your life where God doesn't want the gospel to go. And Paul said, as a result of that knowledge, I am eager. I am eager. The last thing that Paul says in this text comes out in verse 16. or verse, Yeah, verse 16. He says, for... So this is now the rationale behind indebtedness, the rationale behind eagerness... Paul, why do you feel so strongly that you need to discharge that duty? Why do you feel so eager about doing it? And this now is the reason. So it starts with the word for. Paul says, for the reason I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, 
the righteous live by faith. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I think in essentially, what, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I'm confident in the gospel. I love to proclaim it because I love the effect that it has on people. I love the hope that it brings to people. It is the power of God, Paul says, first for salvation. And the idea there is it, is, it has the capacity to rescue from a dilemma of sin and deserving the judgment of God. The message of the cross, Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 1, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, that are responding by faith to it, it is seen to be the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The greatest miracle that you and I will ever observe is the miracle of a changed life. And I believe this with all my heart, the gospel of Christ manifests the power of God like nothing else. This is what should drive everything that we do as a church family, is to communicate the good news of Christ that has the capacity to save everyone who believes in spite of their personal history. That my history in no way obstructs or affects the power of God to save. That's the message that we ought to be proclaiming. And Paul says that this power of saving is to those who believe. And what I love is that it is to the advantage or to the benefit of the one who places faith and trust in the message of God. Paul's clear in this text that we are responsible to believe. believe. Believing is the human response to the gospel. But it does not give merit. Okay, it's because I believe I'm not deserving of the gospel. Okay, here's what believing is. Believing is a beggar who has bread extended to him or her, who reaches out in faith saying, I believe that that gift is for me and laying hold of it. That's how the gospel works. I see my desperate need. I understand how glorious the message of God in Christ is. And I I respond by virtue of God's grace to what he is showing me. And my life is beautifully and gloriously transformed. This saving is a divine work and it applies to everyone who believes. So Paul will later say in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning I ask you the question, if you know the gospel, are you believing it? Are you laying hold of it by faith and trusting? And Paul then in verse 17 makes a powerful statement. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because it saves. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the just live by faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, made available, made clear. Now, the idea that I believe is expressed here is captured uh, in the words of Luther, the reformer. He, he called this righteousness the righteousness of God. And here's what I want you to notice. It has nothing to do with the person's individual standing. It has nothing to do with the person's individual efforts. It is the righteousness of God that you and I desperately need. You know what that does? That destroys pride. It destroys the pursuit of religion. And it exalts the power and glory of God in a beautiful way. It is the righteousness of God that comes to an individual. Luther called it this. He called it alien righteousness, which is to say it is a status that God gives to a believer that, it, that in no way pertains to what he or she has done. It is given to them from outside as a gift of God. It is 
If you want to think of it in terms of clothing, it is new clothing of righteousness that God clothes a believer with. In Philippians 3, Paul says it in this way. He says, I want to be found in him, speaking of Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that is from the law keeping, but righteousness that is a gift of God by faith in Christ. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I've come to understand something. He's saying, I've come to understand that my righteousness is deficient. Okay, folks, I want to tell you something. The best place that God can ever bring you to and the most humbling place and God-honoring place that you can ever come to is to come to realize that my righteousness is filthy rags. That will make you tolerable. It'll make you a better son or daughter. It will make you a better mom and dad. It'll make you a better husband and wife. It'll make you a better coworker. When you realize that any standing that you have with God, any access that you have to God's grace and presence is owing to the righteousness of Christ. That I come only by grace into the glorious presence of God. It is not merited. It is undeserved. And it is glorious. And when that truth settles into your heart, it will, make, it will make you the most pleasant person in the world to be around. It will decimate judgmentalism. It'll decimate self-righteousness. When people understand that the grace of God that has changed me is purely free. And that the righteousness that you begin to see emanating from my life is a result of the work of God. That is the miracle of grace. And that is the miracle of the gospel. In the gospel, God makes us righteous, as Paul would say here, by a divine declaration. He declares us in courtroom terminology or forensic terminology to be righteous. It's pardoned. It's acquitted through the blood of Christ. Let that truth settle in. How gloriously and how beautifully God loves us. The gospel says, I am not righteous, but in Christ I can be counted righteous. He can put in my account something that I would never have so that I have a status that I do not deserve. A beggar who found bread for free. I believe until you realize this truth, the gospel will not be attractive to you. In verse 17, the way that this closes, Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2. He says, just as it is written, the righteous live by faith. And folks, here's what I think that is. I think that is a declaration of hope for all who trust in God in spite of anything in their life. I believe it also is an invitation. When Paul says to just live by faith, the response of our hearts should be, God, that's how I want to live. I see my sinfulness. I understand that the work of Christ is glorious. I understand that he stood in my place on the cross, took the wrath of God that I deserve after living the life that I could never live. And my, my hope, my righteousness is from him. It's not a result of my efforts. That is why we sing the song Amazing Grace, isn't it? Here's what the words say. Maybe you don't think about them when you sing them, but may I remind you of them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, yeah. Some translations have worm-like guy. Folks, what is that? 
That is God-exalting gospel. When we understand that the salvation that we have experienced is owing completely to the work of God, and to it I make, please understand when I say this, I make no contribution. It is full, complete, and free. That means this. It means if I see myself as adorable, which I don't, if I see myself as an adorable, meritorious individual that God could not imagine heaven without, I am not treasuring and I am not believing the gospel of God. Let that settle into your heart. If I see myself as, a, as an adorable, meritorious individual that God could not imagine heaven without, then I do not understand, nor am I treasuring the true gospel of God. God loves sinners. And his word tells us there is none righteous, not even one. So maybe you come this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, there's hope for some better people, but there's not hope for me. I want you to allow this truth, the righteous live by faith, to destroy your presupposition about unworthiness and understand that the grace of God is greater than all of your sin. And can rescue the vilest of sinners who truly believes. Folks, we all stand on the same ground at the foot of the cross. Needy people in need of a glorious Savior. We are all beggars spiritually starving who need the bread of life. And when my Savior came, he was the friend of sinners. Because he aimed to save them through his work on the cross. And he could freely extend invitation to the vilest, even on the cross at the end, to a murderous man. He could offer saving grace. Now, as you meditate on that, and as you sing that, and allow that to stimulate your spiritual thinking, you will become a person who begins to treasure the grace of God. And that treasuring will transform your daily life. You can't know this gospel fully and not begin to experience an overflow that it wants to be shared. It must be shared. That's what the gospel does. Ask God to give you a greater and deeper appreciation and understanding of the gospel. In Luke 18, I think a a text that best illustrates this gospel truth. It's a story of two men that go to the temple to pray. It's a story that Jesus tells One is a Pharisee, one is a publican. One is a religious man, one is a known rebel. One stands before God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men or even as this publican. I give tithes of all that I possess. I give to the poor. Here I am. And it says the publican would not even come near to the temple, the place where God manifested his presence. The Bible says he stood at a distance and he, he smote himself upon his chest saying this, God, it's too bad I'm so bad. And without hope. Is that what he said? Now, you know what he said? He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I, I put myself before you as I am, a broken sinner, 
a rebel. But I trust you. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, this man went down to his house, declared righteous, while not being righteous. Do you understand? He went down to his house justified by an act of God, declared righteous in response to simple faith and repentance. Folks, that's how God saves. If, you, if you've trusted Christ and your life has been changed, that's how it happened. That's the true gospel. That should change my life. That message should transform everything that I do in my life. May God help us to treasure this message. So if there are three reasons why Paul couldn't be silent about the gospel, I am obligated in debt. I am eager. I am not ashamed. The gospel can change anyone. If that's Paul, then that begs the question for me this morning, and that is why are we so silent about this good news? And I, I will be direct. Number one, I think we fail to treasure the gospel, and that's a shame. I fail to treasure it like I should. If I meditated on it as we sing it and as we hear it taught and as we read God's word, it would become the greatest life-transforming force in our lives as the Spirit of God makes it clear to us. Failure to treasure. But I think perhaps the more embarrassing admission is I think most of us would rather be liked and respected rather than be truth-tellers. That's what I believe. That's why Paul uses the word, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Why would he share that? Because we have a tendency to be ashamed. And what Paul is saying is when I treasure it, I can't be. I can't be. Silence is inexcusable. It's unacceptable. Because the message is so great and so glorious. May we be bold like the governor of Florida and the governor of Texas who had to share a hard message because it was the truth. Like the doctor who diagnosed my mom a few weeks ago saying what? You got cancer. If you don't take care of it, it will take your life. These are the steps you have to follow to the best of his ability. You got to respect that. You got to respect people who share the gospel with a heart like Paul. May God help us to never get past and never get over the gospel. May we never stop treasuring the gospel and glorying in our Redeemer who has made our rescue possible. Never stop being honest and truth with people, truthful with people about their true need. This treasuring will transform all that we do as a church, all that we do as individuals, and it will awaken us to the desperate need around us and will revitalize all of our lives and our ministries like nothing else can. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. God, thank you for the word gospel, good news. And Father, I pray this morning that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we will treasure the message that it so boldly and clearly symbolizes for those who believe. And God, let that proclamation as we enjoy it together this morning speak to the heart of 
those who may be here who have not yet come to trust in Christ, God, may they realize that the, that the communion elements proclaim glorious, powerful truth that can rescue all who believe. God, thank you that we proclaim a message that is limitless in its effect and application. So this morning, Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the message of the gospel. Let us feel our indebtedness to you and to those around us. Let us sense eagerness and let us be confident. I pray in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, do this work in us, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.